Father, we come before you this morning thankful for who you are, that you are the one true God, the faithful God, who has given us commandments that are based upon your character, and that you will not dwell in the presence of anyone who violates any of these commandments, but require perfection as you yourself are perfect and have made us in your image. Yet we, as sinners, have failed to properly image you in our lives. And so we could never approach you and be reconciled to you, for we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Yet, seeing us in our miserable state, you did not leave us there, but that you sent your Son, who lived the perfect life that we could never live, and died the death that we deserve as sinners, in order to bring us back to you in order that we may be clothed in Christ's righteousness, to be clothed in your perfect image. And so we thank you for that work that he has accomplished on our behalf. And we thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself so that we who were once far off and not a people are now a people who can gather together to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you also for this day that you've given to us, that as we worship individually throughout the week and with our families throughout the week, that you've given us a special day, a Sabbath, the Lord's Day, where we are commanded and given the gracious opportunity to gather with your saints and to worship you in a corporate setting so that we may get a glimpse and a taste of heaven each Lord's Day where we will spend eternity glorifying you and worshiping you for the things that you've done for us. We pray as we have gathered this morning that you would be with us in a special way, that you would grant us your special presence. We pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would encourage us through our singing, that you would align our wills with your will through prayer, and that you would remind us and encourage us through the Lord's Supper. So we pray that you would, again, be with us in a special way and work powerfully this morning as we enter into this worship and worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, will you turn with me to Exodus chapter 20? Exodus 20. So, the last time that I had the privilege of being able to preach, we began our study in the Ten Commandments. And uh, we dealt in our first sermon with introductory issues uh, that would aid us later on in this study. And so if you'll recall, we saw that the Ten Commandments, or the moral law, is divided into two tables. We have the first table, which was summarized by Jesus in the singular command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second was similarly summarized to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so we saw that the first four commandments, the first table, dealt with our duty towards God, how we are to love God. And then the second table dealt with how we are to love our neighbor. And so today we'll be, begin by actually looking at the first of these commandments. And so it's important that we realize from the outset that this commandment serves as the foundation for the rest of the commandments, not for the first table only, but also for the second as well. If a person errs on this commandment, he'll immediately be in violation of the second, the third, and the fourth, but will also lose all basis for keeping the sixth through the tenth. And that's because this commandment deals with our object of worship. The first commandment, applicable to all men, as we'll see, both requires the worship of the one true God alone and simultaneously forbids the worship of any other God. And so if we fail to worship the one true God, then it's impossible for us to love that God correctly through the remaining three commandments of the first table. But it also removes any basis for uh, loving our neighbor as ourselves. As we'll see in our sermon, uh, false gods can only take things from you. They cannot give you anything. And they most definitely do not give us any kind of selfless command like love your neighbor. So, while this commandment is first chronologically, we must not miss the fact that it's also first by necessity. Perhaps a helpful analogy would be a plane traveling to a faraway destination. It's crucial that the course is set properly because turning slightly to the left or to the right may seem insignificant at first, but after miles and miles, that plane will be significantly off course. And so it is with the first commandment. To fail to keep the first commandment is to immediately derail yourself spiritually and end up who knows where because you've left the course for you set for you've left the course that has been set out for you entirely and so while this commandment seems simple and straightforward please do not underestimate the significance of it so with that said we'll examine this commandment first by expositing it what exactly is required in it and then we'll highlight two characters in Scripture that serve us as warnings. And lastly, we'll explore how to correctly apply it to our lives. So let us begin first by reading the commandment. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's start with the first word. You. You shall have no other gods before me. So this will identify for us the recipient of this command. When God says you, who exactly is he referencing? We know from the context given <clears throat> in verse 1 of chapter 20 uh, that the immediate audience is the people of Israel the people who had just been delivered from the land of Egypt. And so that much is clear. 
But what's interesting here is that the Hebrew word behind you is given in the second person singular rather than the plural. So meaning God was not speaking to the people corporately, but rather individually. He isn't saying you all or y'all, right? He's saying you singularly. So this command, as well as the other nine that will follow, are all addressed to individuals. This means that while these commandments were read aloud to the people in a corporate setting, and that the people as a whole were all obligated to keep them, these commandments are given directly from God to individuals. Each of these people that are sitting under Moses' leadership were being addressed personally by God. And what we see in the New Testament, as we covered in our last sermon, is that the New Covenant saints are also bound personally to the law. But remember, not as a covenant of works, but rather as a tutor that brings us to Christ at conversion in a rule or standard for Christ-like sanctification. So, new, new covenant believers are also addressed here individually. But going beyond the people of Israel and us as new covenant believers, we saw in Romans 2.14 that even unbelievers have the law written in their hearts. So, all men, without exception, are addressed here in the Ten Commandments and they are addressed here personally. You, meaning you and I and every human being that has ever or will ever live is bound to this command directly and personally. So you, that's what's meant here. Now let's move forward in the command. You, singularly, shall have no other gods. Okay, so the first thing we need to do is clarify something. Uh, most, if not all, Bibles will hint at a distinction by printing gods with a lowercase g in contrast to references to Yahweh, which will be spelled with a capital G. And this is because the Bible is as explicit as it can be that there are no other gods besides Yahweh. Consider... Psalm 86, verse 10. You are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. And Nehemiah 9, 6. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on, on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows before you. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides Me. It is I who put, uh, put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from My hand. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no gods besides Me. And on and on we could go, but the point is clear that there are no other gods besides Yahweh. So what's the point then of this command? If there are no other gods, why is he commanding us not to have any other gods? 
The reality of no other gods truly existing makes breaking this commandment so much more foolish. The command is given because men, according to their fallen nature, will always and inevitably make things which are categorically not a god into the god of their life. God demonstrates this foolishness uh, of the idolater in Isaiah 44, 14 through 17, part of our scripture reading this morning. I'll read it again. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat and roasts a roast and is satisfied. And he also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, a graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, you are my god. So we can see the foolishness here, right? A man plants a tree, and then he cuts down a piece of it. Half of it he uses to make a fire, and and he essentially tosses it out as useless. It's good only for firewood. Then the other half he carves it into a god and falls down before it and says, Save me. I suppose for this man it would be pretty important to make sure he knows which end is which so that his firewood doesn't become his God and his God doesn't become his firewood. But clearly that's the point, right? It's all firewood. It's all worthless spiritually. And so we may scoff at the ancient man who carves a God out of firewood, but lest we think of ourselves as better than him, let us remember that we too are by nature idolaters. Calvin famously wrote in book one of his Institutes that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forger of idols. Man will make anything he finds desirable an idol. Consider the false teachers discussed in Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes of them, Their end is destruction. Their God is their bellies. And their glory is their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. So unlike the man in Isaiah 44 who looked outwardly uh, for his God, these false teachers elevated their own desires to the level of their God. The Puritan Matthew Poole writes this of this passage. He says, The great business of these is their sensuality, their good eating and drinking. They mind the pleasing of their carnal appetite as if it were their God. Instead of our Lord Jesus Christ, really, they serve their own belly and love their pleasures indeed more than God. So eating and drinking and other uh, carnal and earthly appetites became the God that they served. So from the man who carves an idol out of wood to the man who makes an idol out of his own pleasure, we can see that idolatry can take many shapes and sizes. 
But the principle is simple. It's that taking anything that is not the triune God of the Bible and elevating it to the place of supreme devotion and service is idolatry. The reality is that there is only one God. There is only one who can rightfully sit upon the throne of man's heart. However, there are an infinite number of things that are not God that can be and are elevated to the place of God. And this, it's important to note, can even include good things. We know that the Scriptures teach us that he who finds a wife finds favor with the Lord. A good wife indeed is a blessing and a gift, but a wife must not become your God. Children, are a gift and an inheritance from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, says Psalm 127. But again, children are not to be elevated to the place of God. A career, a hobby, money, status, power, pleasure, fame, cars, houses, land, and on and on and on, all the things that war for our supreme devotion are here in the first commandment forbidden to be given the place of God in our life. Anything in this life, both visible and invisible, can be sought after with a devotion and a zeal that is only rightly aimed toward the triune God. Anything can become an idol. So the Bible it's clear that on the one hand, there is indeed only one God, capital G, but it warns us, on the other hand, that there are countless gods, little g, that man is tempted to give a godlike worship to. So, let's look now at the final two words of this command. You shall have no other gods before me. this piece of the command is crucial to understanding the broadness of it. Unfortunately, the English translation can be a little bit confusing or it could be easily misunderstood as what's meant here. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, one may understand that to mean no other gods ahead of me. In other words, you can seek after these other things just as long as you seek God first. Just as long as God is at the top. It permit, this understanding permits kind of this list of things to seek with the same devotion as God, just as long as God's at the top of the list. This, however, is not what is meant here. A better translation of this would be, you shall have no other gods before my face, or no other gods in my sight. So do you see how significant that difference is? No list of gods is permitted. No other thing is allowed to compete with God for our attention and our devotion. Our God indeed is a jealous God and He will not share His glory with another. The first commandment forbids the supreme pursuit of anything other than God. He alone is worthy of our highest pursuit and affection Nothing else can be listed among those things. 
unless we think that this commandment is too lofty or rigid, consider that this commandment, as well as the rest of the Ten Commandments, are based upon the very nature of God Himself. The reason why God requires perfect faithfulness faithfulness from us is because He is perfectly faithful to us. The Scriptures are clear about God's unwavering commitment to His people. Consider Exodus 29.45 where we read, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. Leviticus 26.45 But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Zechariah 8.8, 8, I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Hebrews 8.10, which is quoting from Jeremiah and other Old Testament passages, For this is the covenant that I will make with them in the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So throughout all of Scripture, God again and again promises to be faithful to His people. And so just as God has committed to being perfectly faithful to His covenant people, so He expects His covenant people to be faithful to Him. This command is rooted in God's own nature. So we being made in the image of God and obligated to image Him, and to be holy for He is holy, we are bound to a faithful devotion to Him alone as our God. So, we are not permitted to have any other gods before Him. We are not permitted to have any other gods in His sight. Now, this may all seem simple and straightforward, And uh, you may find yourself at ease knowing that you have chosen to follow God above all else, and so idolatry isn't an issue for you. You may feel a strong devotion inwardly, even to God alone, and maybe you look outwardly like you're completely devoted to God and you have nothing to worry about. But the Bible gives us many examples of even God's people, even those who we esteem highly, falling victim to the sin of idolatry. So, with these examples documented in Scripture for us, wisdom would have us take heed lest we too fall. The first example that we'll look at is King Solomon. Now, if you'll remember from 1 Kings, King Solomon was anointed as the king of Israel shortly before David, his father, passed away. And God came to Solomon um, and said to him, Ask what you wish of me, and I will give it to you. I was a very young king, charged with ruling over this large nation of Israel. Solomon asked God to give him wisdom in order to rule well over the people of Israel. And so God responds to Solomon's request in 1 Kings Um, chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, where we read this. 
God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself a long life, nor asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice, behold, I have done according to your word. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there is there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. So God gave Solomon a wisdom that surpassed all the men that came before him and all those who would come after him, meaning he is much more wise than you and I. But let's look at what happened despite this wisdom to King Solomon in his later years. The story continues, and for a long period of time, things went well for the wise king. He ruled over the large nation and had respect from uh, other kings and uh, surrounding nations for his profound wisdom. He was even responsible for building the temple where God was to be worshipped by the people of Israel, the temple that God would not allow King David to build, Solomon did build. But after the consecration of the temple... God issues a warning to Solomon by reminding him of the first commandment. In 1 Kings 9, 6, and 7, we read this. God says, If you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them and the house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, so Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the people. So, despite possessing a profound God-given wisdom and being uh, visited and warned by God about idolatry, still we read this of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 11. Listen to what happened to Solomon. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcon, the detestable idol of the Ammonites, Solomon did what was evil on the side of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain, which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded, 
So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. So, despite all of his wisdom, Solomon still fell into the sin of idolatry. The son of great King David, who was chosen to build the temple for the living God, even he, the wise king, was not immune to this sin. By failing to avoid the women from the surrounding pagan nations as God had instructed, Solomon was slowly turned away from serving God fully. He let his desires for his wives slowly become elevated to the place that is only reserved for God. And in doing so, he built high places for these false gods of his wives and allowed for pagan worship to take place. And so this serves as a warning to us that if even the wise king committed this sin, we must never assume that we're above committing it ourselves. The second example that Scripture gives us is the example of Judas Iscariot. So, this one's a little bit different. While the character of Solomon, particularly his wisdom, is what made his fall into idolatry so surprising, Judas' fall is a little different. It wasn't Judas's character, but rather his position, that makes his fall so significant. Judas, as one of the twelve original disciples, walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. He sat and listened to Jesus teach, and he witnessed Jesus do miracles. He was even sent out by Jesus with the other disciples and performed miracles and cast out demons himself. And so, externally, according to his position near Jesus, it seemed he was in no danger of idolatry. Outwardly, Judas was a model example of a follower of Jesus, yet the scriptures inform us that was not the case inwardly. If you recall in John 12, after Jesus had resurrected Lazarus from the dead, Mary brought out expensive perfume and anointed Jesus' feet as an act of worship and adoration for what he had done for her brother. We read what Judas' reaction was in John 12, verse 6. It says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box. He used to pilfer what was put into it. So we see that externally, Judas appeared to have no other gods before Christ, but he had given his highest and fullest devotion to money. So much so that he would steal money from Christ himself. This actually gives us a perfect picture of what idolatry is. Judas stealing money that belonged to Christ in his ministry is symbolic of the glory that he was stealing away from God by serving other gods. Money had become Judas's God. And this would quite literally be the death of him. 
We read in Matthew 26, verse 14 and 15. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, when the chief priest went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Again, another picture of what idolatry is. Judas literally exchanged the one true God for money, for his God. And as Christ went forth and died to pay for the sins of his people, Judas's God paid only for the field in which Judas would die. The true God gives to his people, but false gods can only take. The people of God stood by as God died to pursue them, but idols will stand by and let their people die in their pursuit. Judas was guilty of serving idols above God, which was instrumental in his betrayal of Jesus. And so please notice that idolatry is a grievous sin, and it's a sin that even one who walked with Jesus himself for years can commit. So, after unpacking this commandment and seeing two examples of it in Scripture, we must ask ourselves this morning, how should we apply this commandment? This may seem simple at face value. Um, It may seem all we need to do is just read the commandment and then obey it, just do it. But as we have observed in our last sermon, the law has multiple uses. The first use of the law, if you'll remember, is its use as a mirror. Remember, it's a tutor. Or as we unpacked last time, it was a servant that led someone somewhere. Typically, it was a servant that led children to school and back. But in this context, it's the law that brings us to the gospel, brings unbelievers to the gospel. It brings sinners to Christ. It reveals our sin to us. It gives us somewhat of a spiritual diagnosis. So, naturally, the first question this morning is, are you guilty of the sin of idolatry? Examine your heart and see if you have let anything else, any other thing, even things that are not evil in and of themselves, to become elevated to the place of God in your life? Is there something that consumes your highest devotion and affection other than God? Remember that King Solomon was once faithful to the Lord, and even, his, even in his wisdom, he fell into idolatry later in his life. And Judas, though he walked with Jesus and was outwardly far from an idolater, had given himself over to the worship of money. And so is this you this morning? If so, 
Please listen carefully because the solution may not be what you think it is. If you're guilty of idolatry and the law is doing its job as a mirror and revealing your sin to you, you must not strive in your own strength to keep the first commandment. Do not turn back to the law to combat your idolatry. You need to turn to Christ in faith and repentance so that you may be forgiven and cleansed. The law is not meant to cleanse you. It cannot cleanse you. The law is a mirror that reveals to you that you're in need of cleansing. But what man sees that he's dirty in the mirror and then takes the mirror off the wall and tries to clean himself off with it? It'd be foolish, right? No, the gospel is what can cleanse you. The law cannot. So, if you see the stains of idolatry on your garment, come to Christ who will clothe you in his perfect white robes of righteousness. Christ is the way, indeed the only way, to escape your idolatry. Next, if you have come to Christ and been forgiven, then please consider with me the third use of the law. The third use of the law, if you'll remember, is its use for Christians as a light and a guide for them down the path of holiness. Remember that this use is distinct, indeed opposed, to using the law as a means to earn salvation. That's not what we're saying here. For Christians, specifically, keeping the law cannot improve our standing before God, nor can failing to keep the law diminish our standing before Him. We have been, past tense, been declared righteous by the work of Christ alone. But now, having that status, as a people given a gift of righteousness, we are obligated, commanded, to follow down the path of Christ-likeness. And the pinnacle of Christ-likeness is, worship, uh, is the, to worship none other than the one true God. Christ came and lived in perfect submission to the Father according to his human nature. He did nothing of his own will, but was constantly subject to the will of the Father. Jesus resisted the temptations of Satan and used the word of God, the will of the Father, as his standard of conduct. He came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the Father's will, John 6. He grew in wisdom and stature and learned obedience, fulfilling a life of sinlessness. He never disobeyed even a single commandment of the Father. And so this makes it crystal clear that Jesus never, not even for a second, allowed anything to be elevated to the place of God that was not God himself. The commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, was perfectly and completely fulfilled by Jesus. And so, as followers of Jesus, 
who Romans 8 tells us have been predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus, or more specifically in this context, conformed to those who have no other gods before him, we must strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to keep God as the center of our worship and our devotion. We must put to death any desire in us to elevate things which are not God to the place of God in our hearts. We must bring our remaining sin to our crucified Lord so that our sin too may be crucified. And so, in summary, if you have not found forgiveness in Christ and you see your sin through the law as a mirror, then do not wait to come to him. Christ stands, even now, ready to forgive. He offers living water to all who thirst. He is the one, the only one, who can cleanse you from the stains that the law has revealed. And if you have come to Christ in faith and repentance, please examine yourself this morning. Let the examples in Scripture warn you that sin lies in wait for all of us. We must, by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep God as the center of our worship and our devotion. We must follow Christ's example and have no other gods before him. And, any, and if any sinful inclination to make something other than God into our God exists, we must pray as Christ prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you that it shows us our need for Christ. While the law does render us guilty, it does not render us guilty and leave us hopeless, but it brings us to the gospel of Christ where we can find forgiveness, where we can find cleansing, where we can find all that we need. We pray that we would be a people that have no other gods before you. And that if there's anything in our heart that would seek to creep up into the place of God, that you would convict us, grant us repentance, let us put that to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would create in us a faithfulness, indeed the same faithfulness that Christ had in his earthly ministry, to pursue your will and your will alone and to truly have no other gods before you. We thank you for your moral law. We thank you for commanding us to be holy for you are holy, but also giving us the clear instruction on what that means. Thank you for not leaving it to our own devices to decide how we should love you and love our neighbor, but for giving us a law that we can seek to follow, though imperfectly. And so we pray that as we continue the study in the Ten Commandments, that first and foremost, we would see our need for Christ in them, that your law would work as a mirror for us, and that we would see 
our sins, but then also that we would see Christ's perfections in the law. And that while we could see our great need, we could find what we need in Christ, for he has already fulfilled the law in its entirety for sinners like us. So please continue to bless the study. Let us be more conformed into the image of Christ, more conformed into law keepers. Let us love your law and seek to keep it, not as a covenant of works, not as a means of earning righteousness from you, but as a response to being given a perfect righteousness from Christ. So again, we thank you for this, these commandments. We thank you for this study. We pray that you continue to be with us and teach us through it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.